So join me today on episode 39 of Taking Charge of My Cancer podcast. I have with us this amazing guest, Liz Corfran. I hope I say it right. So she has been married to her husband for 16 years, and they have a eight-year-old son who is the lie of her life. She grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, but have lived in Gainesville for over 20 years. In February 2020, after her first mammogram, she was diagnosed with a stage 3 IDC with a lymph node involvement. Through the course of 2020, she received 16 rounds of chemo, a left mastectomy, 35 rounds of proton therapy, and a DIP breast reconstruction. Learning she had cancer and she will need chemo was bad enough, but dealing with this while a mystery illness was invading the globe was terrifying. I'm assuming COVID, right? However, Mm -hmm. she but stay positive and listen to the advice of her caregivers and came out on top. She's currently living her best life cancer-free. So Lisa, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you doing this with me today. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited. You have been amazing. So this is just a really small way. I feel like I can kind of repay you for everything that you've done for me over the last couple of years. Awesome. Thank you. So you want to tell us a little bit about like, you know, what do you do for work or, you know, how this like from just the work standpoint? Sure. Um, So at the time that I was diagnosed, I was working as um, an office manager at the University of Florida for the uh, divisional plastic surgery. So I was already kind of involved in the surgery world and... um, I uh, went in to go get my first mammogram and I remember, you know, a few weeks prior, one of the other sur- female surgeons that's close to my age is like, oh man, I got to go get this ultrasound or whatever, because they found something on my mammogram. It's never anything. It's no big deal. And all of this. So I go get my first mammogram and then, um, immediately start getting phone calls they're like okay you need to go get an ultrasound and it was pretty much when i saw the look on the radiologist's face that i knew that it was something serious um i was using an outside provider at the time but i knew because of my relationship with everybody in the department of surgery that i wanted my care through uf health so they set the results over to Dr. Spiegel's office, who you uh, have interviewed, <laughs> and um, kind of reviewed everything and got me in real quick for a biopsy. And from there, everything started moving really quickly. And um, I had given Dr. Spiegel permission to call me and give me the results over the phone because I told her I just I want to know as soon as possible. And I'll never forget, I was on the Sun Terrace um, coming back from Starbucks, walking up to my office when she called me and she told me. But she's so amazing. And, you know, you hear you've got cancer and like all of a sudden your world is falling apart. But the one thing I will never forget is she said, you have curable cancer. So from like the get go, she, based on her knowledge and experience knew 
that we were going to get through this, that it was going to be a really rough year, but we were going to get through it. So that is great. Yeah, this is this is it's amazing how a one word can change so much the perception mm -hmm. of somebody, right? Like, yeah. like you say, you know, I mean, I have not been in you guys' shoes, but I work with you guys day in, day out, you know, five days a week. And I kind of like, I feel what you're feeling just, you know, from the, as an outsider, you know, from the rehab standpoint, but definitely is just those words make a big difference on the amount of stress and, and what you're hoping that is going to happen out of all this, right? Right. Now, um, what were your first thing came on mind? when you My son. That. yeah mm -hmm. yep absolutely first thing that i thought of i was not concerned about myself i was concerned about how everything that i was going to be going through at the time would affect him because he was only four years old mm -hmm. when i got diagnosed so he was still pretty young and you know i kind of ask him about things now to see if he remembers and the it, it not a whole lot, like bits and pieces. So, so it's it had the effect on him that I was so concerned it would. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, I, I get these questions often, like how do I involve my the kids with these mm -hmm. ideas? Do I totally just hide it from them? Mm -hmm. uh, or do I just really face them and tell them like, what was your intake on this and how did you manage that? I thought it was most appropriate to be upfront and kind of warn him about everything that was going on because while he, he may not remember a lot of it now, he was going to notice mom is now bald, mom is now sleeping a whole lot more because I was really the primary caregiver at the time. My husband was and and still does works crazy ridiculous hours so you know it was it was um just knowing that he was going to observe everything that was going on so we just tried to tell him in a very like age appropriate way that mom has this sickness and she's got to take some medicine but the medicine is going to do some really bad things like make her real tired, make her hair fall out and all those things so that he at his level could understand what was happening. Not just that mom was in bed for a week after she went to the doctor. Because at the same time, we didn't want him to think like going to the doctor was going to be this bad, horrible thing for him too, you know? Yes. So I think that's, that's kind of how we addressed it. Yes. I think that's wonderful. I think that, you know, kids understand more than when we think they do. Mm -hmm. And if you are upfront with them, in a, like you say, you, you really mentioned like a proper level age, right? So mm -hmm. we're not going to use the word cancer with them, right? We yeah. are just going to say, right, because this is a scary word. And they may just even mention it to another little kid in the school. And they're like, mm -hmm. what? You know, your mom is going to die then. You know, yeah. the association. So, uh, so it's great for for you to be upfront with them, and 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 then you know, again, even if they're little, like you know, a two year old, yes, yes, it's still like I just don't feel well, and mm -hmm. this is happening, and then just don't be, you know, afraid of get them involved because I think they'll yeah. help more when they know what's going on. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's going on, but really yeah. it's important to do that. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, so tell us what kind of work you're still doing now. You're still working. You're not working. So I do still work for the Department of Surgery, um, but I was actually I had gone back to school. And I was like one semester away from graduating when I got diagnosed. So um, I took some time off of school yet again. <laughs> and then um, once I had completed um, my up to my radiation therapy, then I went back to school that following semester, finished my degree. So I have my degree in healthcare administration. So now I work in HR for the entire department of surgery versus just doing the one for the division of plastic surgery. Okay, perfect. So if we go back into your work with plastic surgeries, you think mm -hmm. that, that was an advantage for you to help you to make decisions in regards what to do with reconstruction or not reconstruction, what type of reconstruction you want to tell us a little bit about. Maybe your process, like why did you end up having chemo first? And then we can talk a little bit more about the reconstruction part. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the, <laughs> the day that I got the phone call from Dr. Spiegel, walk back upstairs, processing everything. And then I go to my boss, who was the chief of plastic surgery. His name is Dr. Mast. I walk into his office and uh, ask if I could speak to him for a minute. And like in that instant, I don't know, I'm not like, I'm typically not emotional or, or like a crier, but I like broke down in tears. And he was like, oh my God, what's going on? You know? And so I told him and he was like, all right, I'm going to give you a breast cancer 101 right now, real quick. He's like, so he, you know, he put on his doctor hat and brought me back down and calmed me down and said, you know, once you kind of process everything, I am more than happy to talk about all the different options that are out there for you. And so I think, yes, because I worked with them, I had the advantage not only of being a little bit more knowledgeable than the lay person just because before I started working with them you think plastic surgeons and all you think is cosmetics right but I had no clue that they go in and specialize in you know different types of uh, breast reconstruction that there are different options even within getting breast reconstruction it's just not you get an implant and you're done, you know? So I think that was definitely helpful. And then I also think that I had the advantage because I had personal relationships with them. So by the time, and and I'll, I'll go back to starting through with the chemo and whatnot, but at, by the time I reached my actual um, reconstruction, mm -hmm. I had three of the plastic surgeons. I had like basically half of the division in the OR with me, each working on their own section so that they could get it done faster so that they had, you know, six sets of hands and the best residents and fellows with them and everything. So it you definitely- were spoiled. Yeah. You were very were spoiled. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh -huh. That's good. I mean, you have to take advantage of those things and I'm glad that they actually are that way right it's like yes, it's not just yes. giving another patient i'm sure that you know they do the same kind of care for every patient but mm -hmm. now a friend a colleague somebody who does tons of things for them so i'm so glad they were able to do that for you so let's yep. take it back to chemo why chemo okay so the chemo was because of the lymph node involvement um so there's there's a saying like 
something about a, an ounce of prevention and is a pound of cure or something along that lines. So maybe I can't even remember the timeline, but maybe six months before I went in um, for my mammogram, I had um, a really large lump in my underarm, but I thought it was just like a swollen lymph node because of, um, I don't know, I was getting sick or something. And then it resolved on its own in a couple of days. Well, now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. there was so much cancer filling that lymph node that it basically exploded and spilled all the cancer cells out into my lymph system and in that area. So because of that, and because my cancer was um, um, estrogen positive, they wanted me to do chemo first um, before I did uh, the surgery to try to number one, shrink the tumor and deal with all the, you know, cells and the extracellular fluid and all that kind of stuff. So that's why they opted um, for me to have the chemo first. I think it's coming up on like new protocol, like standard protocol now is if you have ER positive breast cancer, they do chemo before surgery. And, and uh, usually it's as well if you have a lymph node that is yeah. involved. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. to try to decrease the amount of like disease that is happening at that level. Yep. So I met you back when, so we have a great program here at UF, it's called a prospective surveillance, um, breast cancer, uh, sorry, breast lymph, secondary lymphedema prospective uh, surveillance cancer protocol, which we see patients like, you know, our breast surgeons see the patients and they come see us. Uh, as a pre-op for baseline measurements so we can identify early onset of lymphedema and locally be able to work on that area to really get you back to normal um, and then reverse it instead of just wait until you really get bad lymphedema and it's nothing can be done about it. Mm -hmm. so I made you back then for a pre-op and then you start your chemo treatments if you go back and I know I saw you through what we call our chemo protocols I saw you uh, mm -hmm. before almost every chemo and mm -hmm. work you out just a little bit right yep <laughs> to get you going do you feel like how do you feel that helped you oh it was incredible I and and I started you know kind of deep diving into not google research but actual research and um was something that i found or maybe you pointed me in the right direction dearly was that especially on your chemo day if you go out and you get like a good cardiovascular workout in that number one it helps get the chemo through your system when you're receiving it later that day and it also helps flush it out quicker so you're not experiencing the side effects for as long so no matter my chemo is typically pretty early in the morning on friday mornings so i would get up and walk for at least 45 minutes to an hour every morning before i went to chemo sometimes i could do it the day after, well, usually the day after I was okay, because you're still all pumped up on drugs at that point. Yeah. But then I'd have to kind of rest for a day or two. And then as soon as I felt up to it, I would get back out and start walking again. So I think it was really important to know that 
you can still be active and really you should still be active because it makes it so much easier recovering from your surgeries, recovering from chemo, like all the things you're doing to your body. If you can just move it a little bit, it, it really does help you feel a lot better. Were you able to do any strength training during that time as well? No, most of it was just like gentle walking, not gentle. I did try jogging, but then the chemo that was making my joints really sore. So I just went back over to the walking. Okay, perfect. So then you have finished your chemo and then you were ready to do surgery. And then yep. um, tell us what when did you make a decision about what were you planning to do for reconstruction after your mastectomy? Um, I knew from, from the start that I wanted, um, reconstruction and I wanted to do a free flap if possible. Um, I didn't want to necessarily have to deal with implants, um, because I was only getting a single mastectomy. So it would have been more difficult to have symmetry, you know, if you're using one natural breast and one that um, is from an implant. Um, and then plus, you know, you know that you'll have enough tissue to work with just doing one. So I knew from, from the beginning that I was going to do the reconstruction. So when they did the actual mastectomy, they put, um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the word, the like spacer that they fill up with the air. Yes, expander. Thank you. So they, when they first, Dr. Spiegel went in and did the mastectomy and then Dr. Mast came behind her and put in the expander and then closed everything up. Okay. Will you tell uh, our audience, you know, some of them can be not necessarily familiar with a free flap. So you want to explain to them what that means? Um, so we have, um, I had a couple of amazing surgeons where they are able to dissect the fat from your abdomen and attach it using this like teeny tiny little vessel to a vessel in your chest and form that into a breast mound. So they're using, you know, basically your stomach, your tummy fat to make a breast for you. And it, uh, it looks more natural. It like it loses and gains weight as you normally would. So that was kind of the option that I wanted to go with. Okay. Perfect. The, the short and simple version. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how long were you having to have the expanders before the actually the IP surgery happened? So thanks to COVID for almost a year. So, and, and like I said, I had decided to go back to school. So I wanted to finish school before I completed the reconstruction because I knew that one was going to be tough. And I knew that that one, the recovery was going to be, probably I thought it was going to be harder than the mastectomy. Um, but because I listened to you, it was actually easier. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the expander in for almost a, a year, but I want to say it took maybe four or five appointments where I would go in, you know, one to 
once every week or two, and they would add in more fluid uh, to expand it out so that the skin would stretch a little bit more. Okay, perfect. I kind of, so back to the deep, from my understanding, they don't just take the tissue and kind of lay it on top. You preserve the skin if possible, and then they just take that tissue and shove it into your existing skin and close everything up that way. So that's the purpose of the expander is so that you know you have enough laxity in your skin to add that chunk of tissue when, when it comes to that point. Exactly. So I um, kind of work with you um, one thing that we tend to do is, you know, this thing called prehab. So the more you can strengthen something prior to an, you know, to an intervention, the faster your recovery is going to be. So we kind of like train you or I train you in really working on your core muscles and legs, strengthening and all that, and kind of get you back into some of the weightlifting and things like mm -hmm. that to get your, you know, skeletal muscle mass improving, decrease your body fat mass, all those kind of things that can be a, a risk factor for lymphedema development and as well breast cancer recurrence. So yeah. um, you did work really hard for that year, kind of getting yourself ready for that um, DIP. Again, if you look back, you what are your thoughts about what if you didn't meet me and you didn't really do any core strength or lower extremity strength prior to your surgery, what what are your thoughts about that? Like, you know, your outcome, what doing it versus how do you think your outcomes will be if you didn't do it? Yeah. So I, when I had my mastectomy, I misunderstood the instructions and rested more than I should have. And it was much harder to regain that mobility and and really just kind of move around and not be in pain than it was when I did my deep, which really is kind of a more invasive surgery because you've got, you know, an incision from hip to hip. You've got your breasts that are done because um, they did the deep and no, I'm sorry. I went back in for a, another one to do the symmetry, but so you're walking and you're hunched over. You can't stand up straight. You've got all these things, but because, you know, we had worked out beforehand, I had more strength in my quads. So when I was getting up, I didn't, I was able to use those muscles and let the things that needed to recover, recover. I was also able to, you know, get up and I think, Gosh, probably like the third or fourth day, I would get up and walk and my husband would go with me and I would be hunched over and, you know, we'd make it 10 steps and he'd stand there and he'd help me like catch myself and then we'd go 10 more steps and then the next day we go 15 and then we go 20 and just kind of keep it going like that. And so I think... Again, another advantage that we have with the interdisciplinary team at, at UF Health is a lot of people think, you know, I'm going into a surgery. I really need to rest and sit back and recover. So yep. it, what you should be doing seems counterintuitive than what you should actually be doing. So I think it's important that that be communicated with people beforehand so they can prepare themselves. Yep. Yep. That's super important. And 
as we know, you know, a lot of these cancer treatments really put a toll on you guys, but all those things can have a lot of options to improve it. Are we going to be able to take it completely away? No, but we can modify things. You know, not everybody gets the same secondary effects from everything, but mm -hmm. definitely, I mean, you just prove to yourself and now you're being, you know, um, a good person to really uh, talk to people and say, hey, you know, I did this and that's what kind of made my recovery a lot easier than mm -hmm. I just didn't. So that's great. So if you can give us three valuable tips to your journey, what that will be those? Definitely like accept help. I think that one probably for most people, particularly women, is a little tricky. Like, I definitely had to kind of, I'm a control freak, so relinquish control. I am so incredibly lucky. I had an amazing support system. So, like, my mother-in-law would keep my son, because, again, it was COVID, right? So daycares were closed. No, there was nothing I could do. And my husband um, worked in uh, healthcare, so he was at work, you know, not working remotely like a lot of people were. And so it was really, I had to ask for help and rely on people. My my parents took my son for a week. My sister took my son for a week. My, my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law would come and pick him up every day, she, take me to the ER if I needed. Um, yeah, all sorts of things. So definitely ask for help when you need it and, and be willing to accept it because people really want to be able to help you. You know, people that care about you, they really want to make it as easy on you as they possibly can. You know, you're dealing with enough as is let them do the things they can to help, whether that's, you know, doing the dishes or watching your kid or helping with the laundry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. How about the most painful lesson going through all this? I would say back to the the ounce of of prevention, like take time for yourself. Uh, don't put things off. Make sure because I was forty two when I got my first mammogram, not forty. Had I gone at forty, I probably would not have been diagnosed at stage three with the lymph node involvement and maybe could have avoided chemo, maybe could have had a um, lumpectomy instead of a mastectomy, things like that. So I think it's important to make sure you're taking time to take care of yourself and give time to yourself, you know, whether it's any little thing, your hobbies, things you want to enjoy. I was just so focused on the day-to-day -day grind and just getting through it that I kind of, you know, forgot to focus on what's actually important. So I am grateful to learn that lesson, at least, you know, in my early 40s instead of later on down the line. Absolutely. And, and thank you for sharing that. But as well for uh, people who is hearing this, again, you don't have to wait until 40 either if it's a history in your family and mm -hmm. you know what happened to me again I, I've been a PT for a while but doing oncology in the last 15 years and I remember um, 
back then when I was doing ortho, I was start seeing a lot of patients for orthopedic problems, but that were diagnosed with breast cancer really, really under 30s. And I just kind of like freak out. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, so I had a history, not direct mom, but like my dad's sister and my mom's sister who went through breast cancer. And at that mm-hmm. point, I started to just push and I say, no, I want a mammogram. Mm-hmm. And when I turned 35, I'm like, I want a mammogram now because yeah. I'm seeing these patients right and left with being young on their 30s um, with breast cancer. And again, even though um, I don't think that even I knew if my family ever was BRCA positive or now, but I don't think so because they were like the only person, but I don't think that I ever got testing either because that was a while yeah. back in Colombia. So um, and so I start really early on. So since I became 35, I've just been doing annual mammograms since then. So sometimes it's important if you have a history or for sure if you're BRCA positive or you know your you know mom or your grandmother and your sisters, it is mm-hmm. a genetic issue and make sure that you go get genetic testing and if you're positive get involved with a multidisciplinary center that treats press where they can really advise you, you know, how often to co- to see your um, breast oncologist and how often to do diagnostics and all that. And then you'll make decisions from that point. But, but that's a key, you know, it's sad. Sometimes we have seen patients do a mammogram and then t- 10 years later, another one. It's like, why mm-hmm. are you doing that to yourself? You know, like, yeah. It is just amazing. So that's a very valuable advice. Yeah. Oh yeah. As soon as I found out my my sister or my mom and I immediately started nagging my um younger sister, like, oh, you need to go now. Now. Because she she wasn't quite 40 yet. But again, because of the family history and my age being younger, she met the criteria to go start getting mammograms in her late 30s. Yep, absolutely. Um, is anything that you have that will be a value for our audience and will you share it with us? Ooh, um, I would say be careful, especially in the beginning of like Dr. Google and WebMD and all that, that is just going to lead you down a terrifying path that you do not need to go on. Um, For for breast cancer specifically, um, breastcancer.org was a a great resource. Um, There's so many articles. And then the best thing that I found on there was they have um, groups that you can join. And so I joined a group of ladies that were all going through, we were all starting chemotherapy at the same time. and uh, we created a little Facebook group together and we're still in contact to this day. What There's um, like meetups in the, in the future. So it, it was really nice to have somebody that was going through exactly what you were going through at that time to talk to. And then, you know, we all, most of us started with chemo because COVID threw certain things off the rails, you know, so they had to change and like my mastectomy was canceled and rescheduled multiple times. My deep was canceled and rescheduled multiple times. You know, Um, I remember, uh, you know, a couple of physicians, you know, a lot of physicians don't necessarily go on Facebook on, on postings. And I remember 
you know, uh, Dr. Shaw, the other one of the breast surgeons, like she, I remember her posting something about one time that they were talking about that selective surgeries needed to be on hold again. And she's like, really, how do I face my patient who was just diagnosed with breast cancer that you are, they call this an elective surgery and yeah. you have to wait and who knows for how long and this is going to grow on you. Mm-hmm. And when we were thinking to do something small, now it's going to be something bigger. It doesn't go spread out systemic. I mean, they were like so much, like I saw so many posts from people I work with, physicians mm-hmm. who were like totally like against that. It's like yeah. it's so sad, the type of decisions that has to make, that they had to make, like oh yeah, only have the OR available for this amount of patients. You have to pick mm-hmm. and choose who are you going to give surgery to. So it was really mm-hmm. sad. So I was like, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And and it's hard to stomach that as a patient. And but like, I try to think of things positively. I try not to let things like that really bother me. And really, at the end of the day, if there's somebody that's having a cardiac issue that needs that OR over me, then really, I would rather that person have it as much as it's disappointing, you know, that yeah. your surgery is being canceled or rescheduled. It's it's not the fault of the doctors. It's not the necessarily the fault of the hospital. It, it was just what was happening in the world at that yeah. point in yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing, right? Amazing. Everything that we've been learning from that three years ago, right? That yeah. we'll never do again, right? Yes. <laughs> Here's open. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, what would be three books that you would recommend for the audience and why? Oh, geez. Well, right now, the only books that I read are at like a second grade level when my son and I read together. <laughs> so I don't know if I have any great suggestions other than like the Magic Treehouse series. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That is totally okay. That's what you need to be focusing on now. <laughs> so whoever has kids out there, you can do the Magic Tree. I remember yes. with my kids, so they were super fun. How about movies? I can't even remember the last movie that I saw. Even on TV, not necessarily movie theater. I watch a lot of like documentaries and things like that on like Netflix and whatnot. I think the most interesting one that I watched recently was the one about um, the so-called Central Park Five that was on Netflix. Um, Just following that story was very interesting and, and disturbing at the same time. Got you, got you, okay. How about podcast? So my favorite podcast um, right now is called True Crime Profile, and um, it is a former FBI agent and um, a former profiler from the UK, and they dissect movie like documentary type movies that are on like netflix and things like that so like they've done um they've uh looked at like the oj simpson documentary they've looked at um all sorts of true crime documentaries and then they break it down they talk about it from you know their perspective um 
as a profiler do they think this person is innocent do they think this person is guilty kind of like and uh there was one that was particularly good because uh the case that they were talking about um one of the actual podcasters was involved in so he was able to talk about it from like the perspective of being involved in in the actual case in the investigation cool cool i may have to listen to that Great. So how can people find you? And I will put all that description on the, on the, I mean, sorry, put that information on the description of the podcast, but how can people get a hold of you if they want to talk more with you about, you know, what you went through and. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not very social media savvy, but all of my names are just my actual name, Lisa, L-I-S-E, Cochran, C-O-C-H-R-A-N. Um, so that would be Facebook, Instagram, and then for email, lisa.cochran at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. So if you great. just search my name, I should pop up. <laughs> okay, great. And like I said, I'll put it on the description of the podcast. It's one okay. more question that you wish I'll have, I will have asked you and will you have answered before I let you go? And not, not really a question, but just some general advice for any of your listeners out there that might be in the very beginning stages of this to just take it one step at a time. You know, I, I know a lot of people that were like gung ho, like thinking about what was happening, you know, eight months from now or, or whatnot. So when I was doing chemo, that was my focus. I wasn't really researching, um, reconstruction. I wasn't thinking about radiation therapy, nothing. I was focusing on my chemo. I was doing what my oncologist told me to do. I was doing what you told me to do. And then after that, okay, it was mastectomy and recovery time. And then you move into the proton therapy. So it, taking it one day at a time and then also realizing like on that last day uh, is not the end. Like yeah. you get your last chemo and you celebrate and it's amazing and you ring the bell and you do all these things, but then you feel like crap for like a week afterwards uh, and no. you feel yeah. really crappy because the chemo is cumulative. And so, you know, you get, you have a lot of these like highs and lows yeah. in there. Yeah. So just take it, you know, day by day, one step at a time. Okay. That's a very good advice. And, and we didn't talk a lot about proton therapy, which is another type of radiation, but as well, mm -hmm. So for the listeners out there, since we have our program for five years, I'm mean, still kind of um, at this point, we are what, 48 months now? Yep. And we just did a recent 48 months. So we do a surveillance program where we look into, like I say, any signs of lymphedema using different uh, type of um, objective measures. And so um, I've been following uh, Liz for like, you know, four years now. She has one more to go because we do five years. That doesn't mean that, you know, if any signs of swelling, any issues with core strength, any pain, any tightness on her chest or her abdomen, she kind of reach out to me and then we'll just kind of address whatever comes in. But knowing that she needs to continue taking care of her body, really avoid any risk factors, really continue exercising, continue controlling her BMI, um, improving her nutrition, all those things that um, it's just things that no matter 
if you have any kind of disease or not, you should be able to to do. And uh, are you in hormone blockers, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, well, the chemo actually put me into menopause. Um, so I, they started the hormone blocker when I was on the chemo. And then after I finished the doctor, let me go off of it and test whether or not she said, cause you know, lucky me, I felt I fell into that magic group where some women go back and start ovulating again and others go into complete menopause. So I, yes, so I don't have to do the hormone blockers, but I have to take the um, uh, letrozole, mm -hmm. which is, oh yeah, I guess a hormone blocker. Yeah, yeah, so I'll be yeah. on that one for 10 years total is what yeah. they wanted me to do. Because exactly. I think the goal is to get you to the age that you would have been when you would have naturally entered menopause. Exactly, exactly. So with that in mind, we know that that's gonna be some um, issues with bone health. So that's why mm -hmm. I really reinforce so much in my patients to increase the skeletal muscle mass because that's gonna really improve bone health. It's gonna avoid any bone fractures if you have a fall, just because this um, type of AI, we call that um, aromatizing inhibitors. So, um, and then again, just because your risk of uh, the correlation with VMI and, um, PR positive type of cancers, postmenopausal, um, increase the risk for breast cancer recurrence, really. So just kind of keeping an eye on you guys. So I love every time that you guys come for surveillance because it's the answer. Like, oh my God, Jerry, I haven't been done really well this time with my exercise. And you know, what you want to see on my skeletal mass and my BMI maybe is not what you want to see, but it is a great motivator for you guys to see those numbers change. And then you've been great. I mean, you've been super compliant on everything and exercise <laughs> program. You're like, yes, I'm doing this and I'm doing all this exercise. You have a wonderful husband as well that works out. So has been all that motivation. So, so it's really nice. Like you say, now you're like living a great life. Yes, you may have some little effects for certain things, but um, you just really need to take, you know, life as it comes, right? So mm -hmm. I, don't, I have not been diagnosed with cancers, but I may have some little joint pains here and there and some little hot flashes here and there. And these things that you just have to figure out, okay, how do I face this and what I can do health-wise to improve myself so that doesn't get me down, right? So um uh, mm. so you are amazing Liz and you are going to be an inspiration for so many of the listeners thank you again so much for doing this with me oh it was absolutely a pleasure a pleasure thanks Shirley okay you're welcome and you have a great evening you too